Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. And in the studio with me, Chris Hedges. And I'm so pleased to have Chris with us. He's arguably needs no introduction, but a graduate of the Harvard Divinity School, longtime uh, war correspondent in foreign theaters, some just god-awful stuff you've seen. You, you are one of the most brilliant writers oh, I know. Thanks, I love the—your writing is so evocative. War is a force that gives us meaning, which is a mind-blowing book. Chris's new book is America, the Farewell Tour. Chris Hedges, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Your book is broken into chapters that are rather stark in their single word titles. Decay, uh, chapter one, chapter two, heroin, three, work, four, sadism, five, hate, six, gambling, seven, freedom. Why and what do do these mean? It comes out of Durkheim's great study on suicide uh, published in 1897 where he went out and wanted to look at what it is that drove individuals and communities to acts of self-annihilation. And he looked for these pathologies of self-destruction. And that's what I wanted to do. He coined the term anime, which in the French translation is rulelessness. A-N-I-M-E? A-N-A-M-I-E, right. I see. Anime, which is uh, essentially the rules break down, the social bonds, the social contract breaks down. That breakdown, that isolation, that alienation, that sense of despair and hopelessness manifests itself in self-destructive behaviors, which are rippling across the United States. And so what I wanted to do is write about American anime, in essence, the root cause of what I see as the deep malaise within American society that has given rise to a very frightening and dangerous figure like Donald Trump, but arguing that Trump is the symptom, not the disease, that until we rebuild those social bonds, until we address what's happened within the fabric of American society and and how it has been destroyed, then removing Trump isn't going to solve our problem. In fact, of course, Noam Chomsky argues probably correctly that Michael Pence will be worse because he comes out of the Christian fascist movement that 10 years ago I examined in a book called American Fascists, The Christian Right and the War in America. Right. Brilliant. I should add, by the way, when you're on the road for a tour, so for our right. listeners all over the country, check out, uh, is there a website for, for you or There's for the a book? Twitter account, which I don't run, but they post. They okay. Post it, okay. Yeah. Check out Chris Hedges' Twitter account. So it seems to me that looking at this with, you know, kind of overview, that when societies are torn apart, like you're talking about, when, when the social fabric comes unraveled, it seems that historically, and whether you're looking at the United States, whether it's the Great Depression, whether it was the Civil War, um, you know, whether it's what's going on right now, whether it was Chile with Pinochet, whether it was Germany in the 30s and Italy and, and, and Spain, I mean, name your country. It seems like the precipitating factor or the major kind of pry bar that got in there that popped the first plates off was that of great wealth. It was well, I would basically call it, I would call it taking, taking by the overclass. Yeah, but it, well, that wasn't true in Chile, of course, under Allende. 
it, it, it's it's economic crisis. So in because of Henry Kissinger and the CIA and the IMF and you know they orchestrated a crisis in. Chile. They mm-hmm. created a crisis. There was fuel shortages and everything else. Or I covered the war in Yugoslavia, which was also caused by an economic meltdown. What it is, is in essence, the, the established political elites are unable to respond in a rational and effective way to increasing distress within the society, and then are finally discredited by uh, usually an economic crisis. In our case, you had the destruction of the popular movements, including labor unions, and I would argue the press, that once protected American working men and women, uh, in essence, the and both the Republicans and Democrats, especially under Clinton, are culpable. So the system seizes up. It's seized by a cabal, in this case, corporate. So all of the institutions rewrite the laws. Matt Taibbi had a good book on this divide. There's essentially mm-hmm. two tiered legal system, one for the rich, one for the oligarchs, one for corporations, and then one for us. I mean, they, at this point, have orchestrated virtually a tax boycott. Under Eisenhower, uh, the highest tax rates for the wealthiest individuals and corporations was 91%. Um, An out-of-control military. We used to challenge weapon systems. Now, Trump just gave them a 10% increase, and they're running the wars in the Middle East. So, essentially, what happens is the system doesn't respond to the rights and grievances of the underclass, and that provides fertile territory for a demagogue like Trump, or in the case of Yugoslavia, Slobodan Milosevic, Radovan Karadzic, or go back to Weimar. Because in, the, in 1928, the Nazi party in Weimar was pulling in the single digits. Then you had the 1929 crash. How did Ebert and the Social Democrats respond? Well, they imposed draconian forms of austerity demanded by the international banking system that had bailed the government out, including abolishing unemployment insurance. And what I fear as we stand on the cusp of another economic dislocation, it's coming, even the New York Times a couple of weeks ago ran an editorial on this, is that everything is in place for some very frightening reconfigurations of American society. We already have a president in office who incites violence, who openly carries out attacks against other ethnic and racial groups. I mean, the whole idea that 11 million undocumented workers, all of whom probably earn below the minimum wage, are somehow responsible for the economic freefall of the United States is patently absurd. But when they have a lock on the media systems, I mean, I mean, you discuss it, but, but you know, when even on MSNBC, are you ever going to hear a serious discussion of corporate capitalism and how it works? Never. That's been banished from yeah. the airwaves. Yeah. And so we have now the Republican Party planning to impose austerity on us. Uh, this, you know, and when we well, look at what happened... Well, they just made these tax cuts permanent. I mean, this is insane. Oh, but it goes beyond that. I mean, there, there are serious conversations going on inside the Republican Party right now about can we use this debt? Jude Winiski laid this out in 76 with his two Santa Claus theory. When, you know, when Republicans are in power, run up the debt. When right. Democrats That's come right. into power, That's scream Reagan. about the debt. That's what and, Reagan did. Yeah. Right, and exactly. Right. And, and in fact, Reagan was the first president to actually enact Winiski's two Santa Claus theory plan. He tripled the national debt. And the debt is reaching the point now where within 10 years, our interest payments on the national this debt. This is in the New York Times, $900 billion. Yeah, are going to exceed insane. our military right, budget. Right, right. Well, not just the military. Education. Oh, all, you you know, know, right. the military budget already can, <laughs> right, you know, right. has subsumed right. all of that stuff. And so what it is providing these guys is, and they're giddy about it, yeah, of course. the perfect That's excuse right. to, to impose austerity, uh, literally, to say, you know, we really can't afford federal long-term unemployment insurance. I mean, they've already cut it down to yeah, one year. That's right. We can no longer afford Social Security. We that's can right. no longer afford that's Medicare. Right. Medicaid, we can't afford that. That's for poor people. And then they're going to get a court, if they get Kavanaugh on the court, who's going to go back to the Lochner era and say, you know, Medicare and Social Security are actually unconstitutional. Right. They should be voluntary programs. And no, the minute no, they no. become voluntary programs, they're dead. This is a massive reconfiguration of America that we're right on the edge of. That's right. Nobody's talking about, that's right. except the Republicans that I know who are they're giddy. I, yeah. You know, I, I can't come up with a better word. This is about to happen. We've been working on this since 1935. That's you know, what John Ralston Stahl calls our slow motion coup d'etat, the yeah. coup d'etat in slow motion. And we are now coming to the denouement of that. And the, the, let's be clear, the Democratic Party has been culpable in this. Oh, I agree. You know, this uh, the, the DLC. I mean, this is the, not just a Republican late, Yeah, in the late uh, 80s. Yeah, this this is, although... But you the, are right. We the, are... You know, and, parts of the Democratic Party and, are pulling and, away from that And that's why the police in your town are carrying long-barreled weapons and wearing Kevlar vests and driving armored personnel carriers. Right, because they're, they're anticipating social unrest, which will happen if we have austerity. So 
Chris Hedges, what do we do about this? Um, the problem is it's not done overnight. We have to rebuild those popular movements that created a rational response with the breakdown of capitalism under Roosevelt in the 1930s. Would this start with unions? Of course. Unions, we have to rebuild. I mean, we people like you and me who've been pushed to the margins of the media landscape because the subjects that we tackle are taboo in the corporate landscape, including, of course, Comcast, which owns MSNBC, right. uh, NPR, PBS is a wholly owned subsidiary now of the Koch brothers. So we have to rebuild institutions to pit power against power. But they have done a very effective job. And we just had this right to work law. I mean, there's a, this is also another track, that there is a constant assault on uh, all of those mechanisms by which we can organize, gain self-knowledge and understanding, and resist. That's what the abolition of net neutrality is about. That's what Google algorithms, which are imposed on left-wing sites, Black Agenda Report, Counterpunch, Alternet, Truthdig, which I write for, we have seen referrals from impressions, uh, mm -hmm. which you type in, let's say, imperialism in Google. If I had written an article on imperialism a year or so ago, it would have come up with the other stuff. Now, that referrals from impressions just in Truthdig, which is Robert Shear's great website out of L.A. that I write right. column every Monday, has fallen from over 700,000 to below 200,000. Yeah, the same thing happened to Alternet. It's, Alternet, it's 63%. Percent. Yeah, yeah. World Socialist website, and I'm not a Trotskyite, but World Socialist website is over 83%. Black Agenda Report. Um, this isn't by accident. This is by design. Because the elites understand that across the political spectrum, they don't have, neoliberalism has no credibility left as an ideology. Uh, and so uh, their critics have become more dangerous and therefore their critics will be silenced. But that's just a small piece of the larger puzzle, which as you correctly point out, is about to see us absolutely stripped of not only political power, because we've already been stripped of political power and civil liberties, but for, I would argue, you know, upwards of three quarters of the country, the ability to make a sustainable wage and, and have a, a living. I mean, the, the reconfiguration of wealth in this country, it, it's the greatest in American history. We haven't seen it since the Gilded Age. They're taking us back to Dickens. Chris Hedges' America, The Farewell Tour is the new book. Yeah, it's brilliant. Chris, thanks so much for being with us. It's great to see you. Great to have you in the studio. Thank you. BlindsGalore.com was the first place you could buy custom window treatments online, and because of that, they know what they're doing. They've been doing this for over 20 years and have covered over 2 million windows and know exactly how to get you the right blinds at the right price. They make it easy. They made it easy for Louise and me to go in and order. It was a breeze. It will be for you, too. Blinds Galore's products are hand-built from scratch, delivered right to your door, and created just for your windows. Their expert team is happy to help you every step of the way, either online or over the phone. Plus, they have the industry's best guarantee. If you don't like your custom blinds or shades for any reason, wrong color, you measured wrong, you don't like the style, you can exchange it for another covering for free. Blinds Galore will even set you up with 15 free samples and free shipping on top of the free expertise. It doesn't get any better than that. Blinds Galore makes it easy to get the custom blinds and shades you've always wanted in your home. Go check out BlindsGalore.com and let them know we sent you. That's BlindsGalore.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Judge Kavanaugh's lifetime appointment to become one of the kings of America, one of the black-robed uberlords, overlords, is uh, somewhat up in the air. The uh, White House, Don McGahn, is the one requesting the FBI investigation. And after consultation with Mitch McConnell, Chuck Grassley, apparently, and whatnot, they have told the FBI, yeah, talk to these four people. But if they say, hey, there's other people out there, don't talk to them. Apparently, that's how it's playing out. In other words, it's going to be a, a sham investigation in all probability, which shouldn't surprise any of us. I want to dig into this just a little bit in this regard, you know, what Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court means. And there's two pieces to this. One has to do with just this whole issue of sexual assault and how people behave toward each other and, and all that. And the, the other is, what will it mean to have a fifth Federalist Society member, in other words, a toady of the Koch brothers and their billionaire friends who fund the Federalist Society, a fifth one of these people on the Supreme Court. Sheldon Whitehouse, in his opening statement to the Senate, it's 16 minutes long. It's too long to just play the thing, but I'm going to 
read some of the pieces from it. He starts out, this is September 4th, and he asks this rhetorical question, what's a pattern of bias? And does a pattern prove bias? And he says, this is an important question because ever since John Roberts got put on the court, there have been all these 5-4 decisions. In fact, 92% of the time, he says, when the Republican justices, well, this is a quote from him, he says, the Roberts 5 has gone on 80% of these partisan excursions since Roberts became Chief Justice. And there's a feature to these 80 cases. They almost all implicate interests important to the big funders and influencers of the Republican Party. And he said, when this happens, 92% of the time, the Republican interests win. He's got 73 cases here that all implicate a major Republican Party interest. So what are they? What do they want? Well, he says, help gerrymander election results. Veith versus Jubelreier, five to four, license to gerrymander. Help Republicans keep minority voters away from the polls. Shelby County, five to four. Bartlett versus Strickland, five to four. Abbott versus Perez, five to four. Despite the trial judge finding the Texas legislature had actually intended to suppress minority voters, the Supreme Court had returned it. The big one, help corporate front group money flood elections. If you're a special interest, you love unlimited power to buy elections and threaten to bully Congress. McCutcheon, five to four, counting the concurrence. Bullock, five to four, and the infamous grotesque five to four decisions in Citizens United. What else do the big influencers want? To get out of courtrooms. Big influencers hate courtrooms because they're lobbying and electioneering and threatening don't work. In a courtroom, big influencers used to getting their way have to suffer the indignity of equal treatment. So the Roberts Five works to protect corporations from group class action lawsuits, Walmart v. Dukes, five to four, Comcast, five to four, and in the past term, Epic Systems, five to four. The Roberts Five helps corporations steer customers and workers away from courtrooms and into mandatory arbitration. Concepcion, Italian Colors, Rent-A-Center, all Roberts Five. Epic Systems does double duty here. Now workers can't even arbitrate their claims as a group. Hindering access to the courtroom for plaintiffs generally. Iqbal, five to four. Protecting corporations from being taken to court by employees harmed through pay discrimination. Ledbetter, five to four. Age discrimination, gross, five to four. Harassment, Vance, five to four. Retaliation, Nasser, five to four. Even insulating corporations from liability for international human rights violations. Jesner, five to four. Corporations aren't in the Constitution, Sheldon Whitehouse says. Juries are, though. Indeed, corporate and juries are the one element of the American government designed to protect people against encroachments by private wealth and power. So, of course, the Roberts Five rule for wealthy, powerful corporations over jury rights every time, with nary a mention of the Seventh Amendment, which says you have a right to a jury trial. What's another one? Oh, yeah, a classic, helping big business bust unions. Harris v. Quinn, 5 to 4. Janice versus Ask Me this year, 5 to 4, overturning a 40-year precedent. Lots of big Republican influences are polluters. They like to pollute for free. So, of course, the Roberts Five delivers decisions that let corporate polluters pollute. To pick a few, Rapanos, weakening wetland protections, 5 to 4. National Association of Home Builders, weakening protections for endangered species, 5 to 4. Michigan versus the EPA, helping air polluters, 5 to 4. And in the face of emerging climate havoc, there's the procedurally aberrant 5 to 4 partisan decision to stop the EPA clean power plan. Then come Roberts Five bonus decisions advancing a far-right social agenda. Gonzalez v. Carhartt upholding restrictive abortion laws. Hobby Lobby granting corporations religious rights over the health care decisions of their employees. NIFLA letting states deny women truthful information about their reproductive choices. All five to four, all Republicans. Add Heller and McDonald, which reaffirmed for the gun industry a theory that former Chief Justice had once called a fraud, both five to four decisions. This year, Trump v. Hawaii, 5 to 4, rubber stamping President Trump's discriminatory Muslim ban. And in case Wall Street was feeling left out, helping insulate investment bankers from fraud claims, Janus Capital Group, 5 to 4. No wonder the American people feel the game is rigged. And then he goes on to say, Here, here's how it happened. Here's how the rigged game works. Big business and partisan groups fund the Federalist Society, which picked Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. As White House counsel admitted, they insourced the Federalist Society for this selection. Exactly how the nominees were picked, who was in the room when it happened, and who had a veto or a vote, what was said or promised, it's all a deep, dark secret. Big business and partisan groups fund the Judicial Crisis Network, which runs dark money political campaigns to influence senators and confirmation votes, as they've done for Gorsuch and now for Kavanaugh. Who plays millions of dollars for that? What are their expectations? It's a deep, dark secret.
These groups also fund Republican election campaigns with dark money, the identity of the big donors, deep dark secret. Once the nominee is in, the same business front groups with ties to the Koch brothers and other funders of the Republican political machine file friend of the court or amicus briefs to signal their wishes to the Roberts Five. Who is really behind these friends? It's another deep, dark secret. It's gotten so weird, White House said, that Republican justices now even send hints back to big businesses about how they'd like to help them next, and then big business lawyers rush out to lose those cases to signal their wishes to the Roberts Five. Who's really behind those friends of the court? It's another deep, dark secret. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce is the biggest corporate lobby of them all. It's the mouthpiece for big coal, big oil, big tobacco, big pharma, big guns, you name it. And this year, with Justice Gorsuch riding with the Roberts Five, the Chamber won nine of the ten cases in which it weighed in. The Roberts Five, since 2006, has given the Chamber more than three-quarters of their total votes. This year, in civil cases, they voted for the Chamber's position nearly 90% of the time. And then he points out people are noticing. And Kavanaugh, he says, a Republican political operative his whole career, he's never tried a case. Brett Kavanaugh, as he has never tried a case. He made his political bones helping the salacious prosecution of President Clinton and leaking prosecution information to the press. Brett Kavanaugh, other than when he became a judge, never actually practiced law. He was always a political hitman. This is bizarre. This is the Supreme Court. We've got what the consequences of putting Brett Kavanaugh or any other right winger on the court would mean, which is why there are some of us and Republicans are accusing Democrats of this already. This Mitch McConnell is very clear that he thinks this is the Democratic strategy. And it frankly, I think should be is that if the Democrats win the Senate in November, they will refuse to seat anybody else, to put anybody else in the Supreme Court until the investigations into the legitimacy of Donald Trump's presidency have concluded. It's a much better rationalization than the one that Mitch McConnell had, which is, hey, you know, he's just a black guy. He's our black president. We can ignore what he wants for a year. Obviously, that's not what he said. What he said was, well, gee, there's an election coming. Well, there's an election coming in two years. It's such a BS thing. But uh, Alex Henderson over on Alternet published a piece. Here are the five Clarence Thomas's worst decisions. These are all things that will probably be overturned when you've got five uh, Federalist Society members on the court. Lawrence v. Thomas in 2003, which uh, overturned Texas's sodomy laws and, and basically ended the criminalization of being gay. Obergefell versus Hodges. This is the five to four decision that, in effect, legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states. King v. Burwell upheld the constitutionality of Obamacare, with the exception of the Medicaid part, which really kind of gutted it, but still. And Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstead, uh, which said that the state of Texas could not restrict abortion services if it uh, put an undue burden, the, the court's phrase, on women. So, you know, some serious stuff. Uh, <clears throat> meanwhile, Don McGahn's office, the uh, White House counsel, is the, quote, client for the FBI. In other words, the ones who are charging the FBI to investigate Kavanaugh's possibility that he was uh, sexually assaulting women back in the 80s, I guess it was. Interestingly, if this was a criminal investigation, they could interview anybody. Uh, they could go to Deborah Ramirez and say, okay, what happened? She tells her story. They say, do you have any witnesses? She says, yes, there's these four people. Then they go out and they interview those four people. When it's a background check, it's a whole different thing which is why this is being done as a background check rather than a criminal investigation. With a background check, the client, typically it's an agency, Commerce Department wants to hire somebody and they want to do a background check. So, so they say to the FBI, would you please look into this person, into this person's behavior broadly, but specifically interview uh, his teachers and his parents and the people in his neighbor, you know, whatever. I mean, they'll define it. And the FBI can't go beyond those definitions. If they get information from somebody, Oh, yeah, there's three witnesses to something terrible. They have to go back to the client. In this case, it's Don McGahn in the White House and say, well, may we have permission from you to interview these corroborating witnesses or these witnesses who are going to take this story even farther. And the White House has made it very clear that uh, probably that's not going to be forthcoming. Trump is lying through his teeth about this, which is really fascinating and totally to be expected. 
Trump is saying, oh, yeah, no, we're not interfering. We're just not, you know, we're, it's, let it go where it needs to go. But that's not how Don McGahn set it up. And so now you've got Dianne Feinstein writing this letter saying, what's the deal? We want to see the letter of commission, right? We want to see the, the letter that you sent to the FBI or whatever the document is called, uh, asking for this background check and defining the parameters for this background check. We would like to know why you haven't interviewed Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. We would like to know why you're not going to be interviewing the witnesses that Deborah Ramirez has brought forward. We want to know why you're not even going to talk to, De to uh, Julie Swetnick. Uh, we would like to know why you're not going to investigate the, the, the probability, I'd, I'd say virtual certainty, that on numerous occasions before the United States Senate, Brett Kavanaugh has committed perjury. He lied about what he did in the Bush White House. He lied about what he did with Ken, with, with Ken Starr. He lied about uh, owning, uh, having, uh, being part of this chain of, of control of stolen Democratic documents around judicial appointments. Nobody seems to be reporting the fact that this guy has never tried a case as a lawyer. He's never tried a case. And as a judge, he basically went, boom, right to the front of the class. He's on the D.C. Circuit. It's like this is what happens with wealthy, white, privileged young men who come under the, under the tutelage of the Federalist Society and the billionaires who fund it. Is suddenly they're on a rocket ship to their, to their uh, you know, to the highest, basically the highest position in the, in the country. The Supreme Court can say no to Congress and to the president. They arguably have more power than Congress or the president, at least in, the, in a long-term sense. The ability to shape the future of the country is more hot, tightly held by the Supreme Court than any other body. And Brett Kavanaugh fully expected that he was going to be on that court and that it would be just as easy as when he got on the D.C. Yeah, he, you know, he had to lie, for, to lie to Congress and they held it up for a year or so because they knew that he was lying and he came back and he lied to them some more and they said ah you know his story hasn't changed so we're just going to go with it put him on the dc circuit court where he has sat for 10 or 12 years and now he wants to be in the supreme court and some democrats came along and said no i don't think so and suddenly he's like what you're gonna you you you're gonna keep me from the court you're just doing this to get even for the way that i persecuted hillary clinton it was Brett Kavanaugh, after all, who went to or who ordered the, the Justice Department to go to the families, the, the family, excuse me, of uh, the Vince Foster who committed suicide and get DNA samples to see if they could find any of Foster's DNA anywhere around Hillary Clinton. Honest to God, this was Brett Kavanaugh when he worked for Ken Starr. He was the one who, in fact, he was the one who insisted that they reopen the investigation into Vince Foster. He was the one who strongly argued that Ken Starr should include salacious sexual details about Bill Clinton's behavior in his report, which, of course, was made public. Brett Kavanaugh was leaking parts of that report to the press when he was working for Ken Starr. He wasn't a lawyer. He was a political hack. He was working on the Bush v. Gore decision. He was, he was helping the Republicans frame their arguments to take to the U.S. Supreme Court, where he used to clerk for one of the justices, Kennedy. Just like John Roberts was, he used to clerk for Rehnquist. Just like Neil Gorsuch was, I believe he used to clerk for Kennedy. I could be wrong. Might have been Scalia, but whatever. So this will be three guys on the U.S. Supreme Court who all were involved in helping George W. Bush seize the White House illegitimately. We now know Al Gore actually won the election of 2000. Once the entire vote of Florida was counted, Florida went for Al Gore. By any measure, hanging chads, dimpled chads, pimpled chads, overvotes, undervotes, intent of the voter, you pick it. The only way that Al Gore could have lost the state of Florida is if the recount had been confined to the original three counties that Al Gore had asked for a recount in. If that was the case, those three counties didn't flip the state. But you bring in the other counties, like Volusia County, where suddenly in the middle of the night, votes were actually going backwards. Al Gore votes were going backwards. 
The original vote count was four or five times the population of the county itself and virtually all for George Bush. I mean, there was some really hinky stuff that went on in Florida in 2000. And it was really important to the Republicans to hide it. And so they took it to the Supreme Court. And, they, and the argument that they made to the Supreme Court, and I, it sounds absurd, uh, I am not making this up. You can look it up in Bush v. Gore. The claim that was made by George W. Bush, he sued Al Gore. That's why it's Bush v. Gore, not Gore v. Bush. George Bush, with the help of Brett Kavanaugh, John Roberts, and Neil Gorsuch. George Bush brought a lawsuit before the Supreme Court saying that if the vote recount in Florida that had been ordered by the Florida Supreme Court was allowed to continue, it would cause, and I quote, irreparable harm to complainant George W. Bush, end quote. Irreparable harm. And sure enough, you know, he wouldn't have been president. And I'm guessing he was as upset about that as Brett Kavanaugh was about, oh, I'm not going to be on the Supreme Court. How dare you? I'm going to cry. I look at my calendars and say, how dare you? This is, this is revenge for the... If Hillary Clinton had behaved like that when she was being interviewed for, interrogated for 11 hours in the 730th Benghazi hearing, none of which produced even one single indictment, by the way. Robert Mueller has already got, I believe, over 30 and, and nearly a dozen guilty pleas or convictions, people in jail right now, all of them associated with Donald Trump. who I believe is the most corrupt president in history. I think he beats Nixon. Of course, that's what the Republicans like. Marty in New Hampton, Pennsylvania. Hey, Marty, what's on your mind today? Hello. Hey, Marty, you're on the air. Hi, how you doing? Uh, I love the show. I just have a question about uh, the Supreme Court. If you rationale that what he might vote or what, decisions may be overturned, then you're kind of disrespecting the court, the entire idea of the court of being neutral. The court's not you're neutral. Excuse me? The court is not neutral. In the last, yes, 80, in the last 80 cases, you know, high-profile cases, cases where there was a Republican financial interest as a participant, right, you know, a, a businesses in pollution or whatever it may be, in the last 80 cases, 92% of them were decided on behalf of the Republican financial interest, as opposed to the workers, the right. people, so, so the saying, children. So you're actually stating that the Supreme Court no longer bases their decisions on the Constitution. That's absolutely what I'm saying. Okay, I happen to disagree with that. Well, I would, uh, I would direct you to Heller, I, for example. If I, may, if I may offer a, um, a hypothetical. Sure. Uh, if, say uh, Kamala Harris wins the 2020 election. And the Senate is taken by the Democrats, but the House is still held by Republicans. And at that time, Judge Clarence Thomas retires. Now, does that mean that in, based on what your principle is, is that that, she, that seat should go uh, to a conservative because it was of a conservative? What I'm saying and is I, two things, Marty. The first is that what we call conservatives are not conservatives. They're right-wing reactionary radicals. Okay, and and there has, to the best of my knowledge, never been a left-wing reactionary radical on the Supreme Court. Never. The, the, people that, the, the, the people on the court that have been nominated by Democratic presidents have typically been people in the middle, essentially. And the people that are being appointed now via the Federalist Society are hardcore right-wing reactionaries whose only interest is the, is the interests of the very, very wealthy and the very, very powerful in the society. And the rationale well, for that is this right-wing belief that, as Thomas Hobbes said, in man's natural state, Life is short, nasty, and brutish without the intervening force of church or state, is what Thomas Hobbes said in Leviathan. And this is the core of the, of the conservative worldview, that you need to have an authoritarian state. So uh, what I'm saying is that the Supreme Court has been so heavily politicized now, frankly, since, since the 1870s. I mean, Abraham Lincoln took the size of the court up to 10 so that he could start winning decisions. Andrew Johnson, who followed him when uh, General Sherman 
gave 50,000 African-Americans 40 acres and a mule. Andrew Johnson, then president of the United States, retracted that. A case went to the Supreme Court around it, and Johnson reduced the size of the Supreme Court to seven. We have been playing games with the Supreme Court literally since the 1860s. Don't forget, don't and, forget Franklin Roosevelt, and, uh, who also tried to go to 12. He tried to pack the court. Yeah, absolutely. It would have been 13, actually. But, but here's the thing. I'm suggesting that, be, that, that, that because of Marbury versus Madison 1803, because the court has taken onto itself the power to strike down laws passed by Congress and signed by the president, and even come up with brand new doctrines, you know, things that didn't exist at law at all. For example, the concept of the three different trimesters, each having a different legal consequence, which was articulated in Roe, or the concept that corporations are people, which was, you know, first stated in the head note in Santa Clara County back in 1886 and, and now has become, you know, amplified by Citizens United. Um, and I could, you know, I could go on. I, if, Heller, uh, you know, Scalia finding an individual right to own guns in the Constitution, he had to go back to, in order to find that, he had to go to an anti-federalist pamphlet that was published in an obscure Pennsylvania newspaper in the 1790s. An anti-federalist, a guy, a guy who was opposed to the Constitution itself. That was the basis that Scalia used for his so-called original intent. These are all partisan decisions. And for this reason, I think that, number one, the size of the court should be expanded. The Supreme Court of India, I think, has 35 people on it. The Supreme Court, Supreme Courts of many uh, European countries have as many as 20 people on them. I think the size of the court should be expanded, number one. And number two, I think Supreme Court justices should be term limited to 18 years. You stretch it out as you roll this in over an 18-year period, so that every president will have a couple of nominations coming up as the natural consequence of this. And I think that would clean up this thing. Uh, let's see here. Tom watching Free Speech TV in Edmonds, Washington. What's on your yeah. mind today? Well, I don't know if you've been checking the trade deficit, if it's changing the way Donald Trump says it is. I it's been know. getting worse, actually. Yeah, that's what I thought, because I live right on the waterway, and I'm seeing a lot of boats loaded to the gills, including bulk commodity boats, which are, I've never seen before, bulk commodity, com commodity boats come into the Puget Sound empty, and they go out loaded down. Not anymore. It's the opposite. So, so that's an interesting thing I've never seen before. Yeah. But anyway, I'm thinking about maybe a more, what's the word, a pragmatic way to do this justice thing is, okay, we have four and four. Why don't we keep it at four and four? Make a, if the Democrats take control of the House and the Senate, say, okay, we're going to have eight justices. It has to be a compelling argument that somebody brings to the court. Otherwise, it gets kicked down to the lower court ruling again. In other words, it's got to be something. They can mm -hmm. have a pretty good argument. And, and then, I don't know, maybe that would uh, settle things down a little bit. But I can see your point about if they do get control, they really need to start stepping on the gas and pulling away from the right wing. Because... They let the right wing back in the race all the time, and, and the right wing, guess what? If you let them back in the race, they always win. So yeah. The Democrats have done it over and over where they try to play fair once they get in power, and then the Republicans, oh, great, you're going to play fair. We're going to pound you into the dirt. So. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, I, I so agree, and, and, and it's... Uh... <sighs> It's, it's not so much a matter of playing fair, although I would argue that the Republicans definitely, I mean, you know, holding Merrick Garland back for almost a year, that's, that's not playing fair. Uh, that's, that's not even, cool. yeah, that's not even playing legal or, or playing to the standards and, and ideals of our country. That's, that's just simple. Yeah, no, I'm not talking thought. about actually not playing fair. I'm just saying you really have to step on the pedal and, and do everything you can, pull out all the stops to get the pressure on to get, you know, and actually, like, when Kavanaugh was up there and he started, you know, bullying the women, I don't know why, um, what's her name, uh, Klobuchar, just didn't say, can you stop acting like a three-year-old for about three minutes? Yeah. You know, uh, why not say that? Because that's what a Republican would say, and that wouldn't be unfair to say that. Yeah. No, I agree. <laughs> yeah. I agree. It's yeah. it's okay, it's pretty bizarre. I mean, you know, when when you've got a guy who wants to be on the Supreme Court of the United States, where of all the courts that we have, judicial temperament is vital. I mean, this is 
the future of the entire country. This is not some circuit court in, uh, you know, or some local district court in, in Peoria. So you want to know that the judge that you're going before is thoughtful, not easily swayed by emotion. And then this guy comes yeah. out and starts crying and screaming and pounding his fist on the table. And it's like, well, I'm not sure he pounded his fist on the table, pounding down drink glasses of water. And at that yeah, point, like a little kid, yeah, a little, like a little kid that couldn't get any candy at the grocery store. Yeah, he, it was a tantrum. I mean, you know, it was like classical definition of a tantrum. I don't know how you could call it anything else. Tom, thanks yeah. a lot for the call. It's great to hear Thank from you. you. Hi, I'm Randy, and this is Dave. We're the founders of Bombas, makers of the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. So comfortable, we've sold and donated over eight million pairs. Yes donate it. Why? We learned that socks are the number one most requested clothing item at homeless shelters. So we started Bombas with the mission of donating a pair of socks for every pair we sell. To donate and sell a lot of socks, we became obsessed with comfort. We reinvented the sock from the ground up using the best materials available. Like the softest and most comfortable cotton. Getting rid of what wasn't working. Like that annoying toe seam you can probably feel if you wiggle your toes right now. And inventing a few new comfort innovations along the way. Like arch support that feels like a hug around your midfoot. It worked. People tried them, loved them, told their friends about them. Helping us sell and donate over 8 million pairs. Try them now at bombas.com slash Tom and get 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash T-H-O-M. Bombas.com slash Tom. Jason Katz wrote a book called The Macho Paradox, Why Some Men Hurt Women and How All Men Can Help. And he tells the story about how when he's teaching a class, he goes up to the chalkboard, draws a line down the middle, so you get two halves, and puts a uh, stick figure of a woman on one side and a stick figure of a man on the other. And then he turns to the class and he says, uh, what steps do you take? First, he says, just the men. He says, I'm just asking the men, what steps do you take on a daily basis to prevent yourself from being sexually assaulted? And he said, typically the men will laugh. There'll be silence. Uh, one guy, he says, uh, will, uh, said, hey, I, I try to stay out of prison. And then everyone laughs. And then finally somebody will just, you know, come right forward and say, nothing. I don't do anything. I don't think about it. And then he asks women, what steps do you take on a daily basis to avoid being assaulted? And Louise and I were talking about this this morning. And she's, yeah, when I walk to the car, I hold my keys in a way that I can use them as a weapon if I have to. I look around me. I'm conscious of where I am. I... I look inside the car to make sure there's nobody there before I get in it. And this is what he reports. He says, women do these things on a daily basis. Carry a cell phone. Don't go jogging at night. Lock all the windows when I sleep, even on hot summer nights. Be careful not to drink too much. Don't put my drink down and come back to it. Make sure I see it being poured. Own a big dog. Carry mace or pepper spray. Have an unlisted phone number. Have a man's voice on my answering machine. Park in well-lit areas. Don't use parking garages. Don't get on elevators with only one man or with a group of men. Vary my route home from work. Watch what I wear. Don't use highway rest areas. Use a home alarm system. Don't wear headphones when jogging. Avoid forests or wooded areas even in the daytime. Don't take a first floor apartment. Go out in groups. Own a firearm. Meet men on first dates in public places. Make sure you have a car or cab fare. Don't make eye contact with men on the street. Or, if you must, make assertive eye contact with men on the street. This is from Jason Katz's The Macho Paradox book. And I find it fascinating that there is this huge difference, and I'm quite sure that there's also a difference between the way that minorities, African-Americans, Hispanics, Asians, male and female, the women have the double whammy on them, and men also. It's not so much being afraid of sexual assault, although many gay people and trans people are concerned about that and frequently victims. And yet white men, nothing. No problem. Walk down the street. And I'm wondering what your experience has been of that. Walter in Washington County, Pennsylvania. Hey, Walter, what's on your mind today? Oh, not much, Tom. How are you? I'm well. You wanted to talk about avoiding assault. Uh, well, actually, I've been assaulted three times in my life. Whoa. And I have a disability. I have cerebral palsy. And I've been assaulted three times. I don't find it funny. And when I saw Brett Kavanaugh acting like a spoiled little child, I wanted to slap him. So were you assaulted because your, your condition causes you to seem, shall we say, non-normal? I, I was actually in an advantageous position. I actually, without getting too specific, I uh, just had surgery. I was in a cast. I had to have a tutor and... The female tutor took advantage of the situation. Hmm. 
Remarkable. So Remarkable. when I hear, you know, women being sexually assaulted, people don't realize that men are just as assaulted as women are, but it's so grossly underreported. Yeah, yeah, absolutely true. Walter? And, and, you know, and I've had to deal not only with this, but I've had to deal... I grew up, Tom, in the 60s. I had to deal with a threat of institutionalization from the time I was six years old. That's got to be a challenge. That's got to be a tough one, too. Because every, every time the state nurses would come in, you know, lock him up, put him in a home, he'll never mount anything, he can't function, he'll never be anything. So I've had to deal with that all my life. Jeez. Amazing. Walter, thank so when you. When I hear this spoiled little brat, Kavanaugh, which I'd like to slap, he has no idea what life is like. He's lived his life. He's gotten everything he wanted. Yeah, this is the problem of, of people of privilege trying to impose their, their worldview on, on all the rest of us. Walter, thank you for the call. I, I, I think that's very, very well said. John in Los Angeles, listening on KPFK. Hey, John, you had some thoughts on avoiding assault. You're blind. Do I have that right? Yes, I'm legally blind. Um, so I can barely see a lot. The things that I go through on a daily basis are just trying to live throughout the day without getting accidentally killed by the police. It's ridiculous. Mm. Like, for one, when I step out of the door, I know I got a ball and chain on me because I'm a black man anyway. Right. So if I step out the door and I hear sirens, I will go back in and I will wait until the sirens pass. If I hear a chopper, I will go in until it passes. Once it passes, stepping outside, I walk close to walls. I get close to windows. I may can't see all the way through, but I can see the reflections. Mm. And I can see the reflection behind me. Walk with my keys a certain way. I make sure I don't have anything metal dangling from me. I make sure I don't have anything sharp other than my keys in my pocket. I make sure I carry at least four forms of ID on because I've had the police jump out on me. Wow. And, and literally, this for no reason, oh, this ain't your ID. Uh, where's your other ID? Where's something else? Where's something I mean, I literally had to go through this. I had... Uh, if I buy a soda from the store and I'm thirsty and I want to drink it, I I have to have it without a bag. Wow. The can cannot be a certain color. So your your principal fear, John, is not some white person assaulting you because because of your color, but uh, because of your race, but rather because the police assaulting you, and killing you. It's the police first, the white folks second. Mm -hmm. And it's bad. I mean, and down here, it, 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 it's like that. It literally is like that. The police first. Cause I've seen what these cops have done to people down here. Yeah. I've seen it with my own eyes. I was down here where my buddy Africa, he's known as Africa, was shot to death. Mm. Okay. He was in his own tent. And they drug him out, and they shot him to death. Wow! In front of it's on YouTube. Yeah, you can hear the shots and everything. I'm like, I can't believe this. Yeah. So I mean, it's, it's that, and then when I'm out into, Lord knows if I'm out like Van Eyes or somewhere. I I when I see a group of, of, of white people and I and I'm out of my element. I walk across the street yeah, to avoid the hassle. John, thank you for sharing your story with us. That's, that's compelling. Apparently very, very typical across the United States. Amir in Los Angeles. Hey, Amir, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? Yes. Hello, Tom. How are you? I am well. Um, What's on your mind? Yeah, you asked about, you know, um, if you're a minority, you know, you've been, you have to be careful, you know, regarding assault. Mm -hmm. And I just remember, you know, back when I first moved to the United States, I'm, I'm an Iranian American. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the hostage crisis, and uh, I lived in a really predominantly white neighborhood. And everybody, and it didn't matter if it was white or not, they, of course, you know, there was the animosity towards the hostage crisis, which I had no part of, and I could. Um, relate, you know, to the nationalists, you know, uh, 
if, if, if I was in the shoes, I would be doing the same thing. But I continuously got attacked, and so I had to uh, change my path of going to school each time. You know, I had to uh, look my, over my shoulder every time. Uh, I made sure that I don't carry anything in my pockets because uh, if caught in the fight, you know, I didn't want to have anything uh, that would be construed that I would be the one who was provoked it. Hmm. When the bell rang, you know, and, and you had to go from class to class um, in, mid- in middle school, um, I had to rush out of the class because right in, and get to my other class before uh, all the other kids have gone, you know, or uh, make sure that, you know, I'm, I've got enough time that, you know, while there's lots of people around, not, not everybody was doing that. It was maybe a very small percentage, but um, I did. <laughs> have to um, keep uh, an eye over my shoulder all the yeah. time. Yeah, because the because of the bullies, basically. That's a tough yeah, one. And, and, and most of them happen to be <laughs> white uh, and uh, upper class because we were living in the upper class neighborhood. Yeah. Well, there was and a there was a stu- study over the weekend yeah. that showed that economically upper middle class and upper class white men in college are more likely to drink to excess, more likely to basically abuse their their privilege. I'm sorry, I, inter- I interrupted you, Amir. No, no, no. And, and at the same time, there was busing going on in Los Angeles, so they used to bus a lot of kids, you know, from uh, lower economic uh, levels into that school, mm-hmm. and I never had any problems with any. <laughs> Yeah. Or, n- or none of them ever had anything um, to do with. And maybe sometimes, you know, they actually, they were, they were the ones, you know, who would step in and um, and help me out. There's some real interesting science that indicates that um, uh, women and minorities and poor people, because they are more vulnerable, become more empathetic. They become more carefully attuned to, calibrated to, nuances of word and expression, and that uh, wealthy white people, by and large, particularly men, because their lives don't depend so much on other people, become over time less empathetic and more willing to buy into things like the whole libertarian story of how things should be. It's, it's fascinating. Amir, thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank, thank you very much. It's great talking with you. I, I really appreciate it. And thanks for listening to KPFK. Take one atom of nitrogen and bond it with one atom of oxygen and boom, you just created nitric oxide, a miracle molecule your own body makes that fuels your cardiovascular health, keeping you vibrant. But as we all age, our bodies need help generating more natural nitric oxide. Superbeets by Human N has harnessed the power of nutrient-enriched beets and created a superfood that helps your body make more nitric oxide on its own. The core philosophy of Human N is to develop heart-healthy products for your body. One teaspoon of Superbeats daily supports your cardiovascular health and blood pressure levels, giving you natural energy without the need of a quick caffeine kick or sugar high. We're talking real. We're talking healthy, natural energy. Call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats and free shipping with your first purchase. Feel the 1 plus 1 equals boom effect of Superbeats. Call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com today. So let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Ellen Ratner's new book, Loving What You Do. On the line with us is Bob Ney, the author of Sideswiped. Congressman, welcome back. Well, it's kind of... uh President Trump and Kavanaugh FBI Day, I'll call it. Mm-hmm. But if we can start, uh, first of all, uh, of course, we know uh, what happened with Senator Flake, and uh, he had made the, you know, the decision to support uh, an FBI look into this entire thing. And uh, he you know, had a lot of criticism, but then at some point in time, it seems that Grassley you know, seemed to, of course, go along with it. He didn't have much of a choice anyway. And then the Sunday show started. If everybody would have kind of kept quiet from the Trump camp, I, I don't think would have had as much controversy. But then there were comments about, uh, you know, that the president didn't want it to be a fishing expedition, et cetera. So now the president has said, as of today, now this was today, that he wants the FBI investigation of the allegations against Kavanaugh to be, quote, comprehensive, but that he will ultimately defer to the Senate Republicans to dictate the scope. 
So there was a national media report about the president providing the Bureau with the witnesses they can interview. The White House is disputing that. But I don't know, no one knows yet, what the Senate Republicans at this point in time you know, are saying about it. So, I think Trump is lying through his teeth because he does that so often and so well directions of what to do with it yeah i you know I, he's, he's trying to characterize this as as something other than a than a handcuffed uh, uh investigation the fbi is told you can talk to these four people if they offer you other witnesses or other people that you should talk to you may not talk to them you can't take mm -hmm. this any farther than this you can't look into the question of how many times he committed perjury before the united states senate in the past you can't you can't look into the uh, charges from uh miss miss swetnick uh, Julie Swetnick, uh, that you know, gang rape was going on. It's wallpaper, you know. It's a, it's a, a cover-up. Now we all know that the FBI brings back. Sometimes it's called non-determinational, you know, stats or, or facts. Mm -hmm. But I would assume that the Democratic side will uh, be able to inquire of the FBI. You know what. What was your scope and what it wasn't? I would assume they're going to have to answer that. If in fact it's been narrowed with interference from the White House, that may actually cause um, some votes to go against Kavanaugh. Republican it votes? May. Yes. It may Who? provide, especially for Collins, uh, extreme heat for Collins and maybe um, Murkowski. Murkowski. Yeah. It may huh. provide heat, frankly, Flake himself. Yeah. Who asked for this? I mean, if you ask for something and then it is, you find that it's directly narrowed by the White House, the White House can ask for something, for example, in the case of Anita Hill. You know, it was asked for, they did a three-day look at everything, but the White House, as I understand in that case, didn't say, here's what you look at. They told them to look at the uh, the allegations against Clarence Thomas. Yeah. I wonder where you Bob know. Corker is in all this. You know, you can always say, well, it's inconclusive no matter what the FBI says. Mm -hmm. um, staying on the topic of, you know, releasing information, et cetera, Representative Maxine Waters has denied this weekend that an aide in her office posted personal confidential information about three members of the um, the uh, Judiciary Committee who are Republicans, and that was backed up by uh, the IT section, by the way, of the U.S. House, mm -hmm. because they, they can determine IP addresses, you know, et cetera. Right. So I did want to mention that because that got a little bit of uh, controversy to it you know, over a period of time. We are looking at NAFTA. It's to be determined yet what exactly it means. I mean, I think it's positive that uh, there was a deal cut. Frankly, uh, I didn't think Canada was going to come into it whatsoever, but it did at 9 o'clock or 9.30 right before you know, the deadline. I've been told, Tom, I don't know if you picked up anything, that this was orchestrated by Jared Kushner. Have you picked that up? The trade deal? Yes. No, I, my understanding is that Robert Lighthizer has been running the show. Right, but I, w I was told, and I don't know, by friends on Capitol Hill that Kushner had a huge uh, back and forth, was, I don't know, doing some type of talking with somebody in Canada to... Oh, yeah, he might be the guy who brought Canada into it. I, I just, I have no idea. Something, I haven't, yeah, I haven't so heard that I don't have it confirmed by Showtime, but I just didn't yeah. want to mention that that was possible. So we've got to see the details uh, of it and where, you know, in fact, uh, it all weighs down. Uh, Iran has launched some missiles into eastern Syria. All right, and uh, and there's proxy wars, and then you have John Bolton in the White House who is constantly saying bomb, 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 and uh, is a great influence in his position with yeah. the White House, with the NSA. And then uh, there's a new democratic strategy. This is fascinating. Uh, I like grassroots politics. And if you look at what President Obama has been saying, uh, you can wring your hands, you can yell, you can be angry, and that's good, but you need to do certain things. Well, the National Democratic Training Committee, NDTC, is launching the first ever online training platform. It's called Vote Builder. It's targeted, by the way, almost specifically, for the most part, to legislative races where the Democratic side has lost some. Uh, so it's going to be interesting. Hands on, get out the vote for legislative races. That's great. How to fight back against billionaires. Um, Bob Nay, Talk Media News. Thank you, Bob. Okay, thank you. Great talking with you. Gene in Sonoma County, California. Hey, Gene, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, a while back, it feels like a week ago, you mentioned an attorney named Cyrus Sanai, S-A-N-A-I. In The Intercept, there was an article saying that there were six federal court employees that were willing to testify against Kavanaugh, who was an uh, understudy for uh, Kaczynski. The, the scandal judge. Right. I'm wondering, has this all been swept under the rug, and did those six employees ever get to testify? 
I don't know the answer. I know that Kaczynski was a pretty awful guy and that, yeah, uh, Kavanaugh was his protege yeah, and there was virtually no discussion about that in the media right. or in the hearings, frankly. There's several times uh, Democrats tried to bring up Kaczynski and every single time Kavanaugh changed the subject. Right. So I'm thinking here's the, the cover up is right here. And then uh, I'm Facebook friends with David Talbot and on one of David Talbot's posts about this on Facebook. Here comes uh, Roger Stone. You would think he learned his lesson to just keep his mouth shut. He's being real snarky on this whole subject with uh, the women. Hmm. And I'm going, what? And, you know, and, I'm, and he's like, oh, uh, it, 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 basically the whole scope of this investigation with the FBI is being limited. Yeah. And that's what's scaring the daylights out of me. Well, it doesn't scare me. It confirms my belief that the billionaire class, you know, the Rupert Murdoch class and the Donald Trump class have effectively seized control of most of the channels of communication in this country and most of the levers of power in our government. And we've got a long climb to dig out of this hole that, that they have dug for us or this moat that they have surrounded themselves with or whatever, you know, pick the metaphor. But yeah, Gene, I got to run, but thank you for the call. We live in interesting times, my friends. We really, truly do. It's nice to have a venue like this show where I can vent about it. It's personally cathartic. Hopefully it is of value to you as well. And, and I think it's really important that we all stay well informed about what's going on so that as opportunities arise, and there's going to be a big one coming up in a couple of weeks here with this election, about six weeks, as opportunities arise, we can step into the breach, step into the fray, and actually produce positive change. And that means don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Tag, your it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 